0: Thank you and welcome to Scripture on Creation. I'm Scott Cump. And I'm Dr. Ben Scripture. Dr. Scripture, about five years ago, you did a series of programs on some articles published by the Creation Research Society, mm-hmm. which you consider to be very interesting and important and thought that those programs were worth broadcasting again. That's right, Scott. The spring 2016 issue of the Creation Research Society Quarterly,
1: or CRSQ, was a special edition dedicated entirely to genetics. And although it's been about five years since its publication, the research
0: we discussed is totally relevant today. So here is the first program in this three-part series on genetics and creation science. The Entire Journal
1: including five unique articles, as well as a very informative introduction, is all about the field of genetics and its relationship to creation theory.
0: Well, I know that genetics is closely related to your field of study when you were in graduate school, so I can see why you'd be so enthusiastic about this new publication. Oh, yeah, indeed.
1: Now, but to be clear, I am not a geneticist in the classic sense, My work was in molecular biology, which deals with the structure and function of the molecules that make up genes, as well as control them through the dynamics of
0: biochemistry. But frankly, (laughs) that stuff is not very exciting to most people. Well, could that have something to do with the fact that most people would not have a clue what you'd be talking about (laughs) if you started explaining what you were looking at when you did your research?
1: Well, maybe. But let's face it. Understanding the structure and function of 5S ribosomal RNA, which enables it to bind to the ribosomal protein L5, (laughs) isn't something very many people would know anything about. I would say that's a given. (laughs) But even if you understand what that sort of means, it's knowledge that is not very practical in most people's daily lives. But learning that buried inside every one of your cells is information that links you directly back to Noah and his three daughters-in-law. Now, that might capture the interest of lots of people.
0: Yes. so this new Creation Research Society quarterly journal is about Noah and his son's wives? It is, in part, as well as several other scientific
1: topics related to the field of genetics that all point to a similar conclusion. Using genetics, we are finding numerous evidences which support what the Bible describes in the narrative accounts of Genesis, whether it's special creation of the various kinds of plants and animals that happened on days 3, 5, and 6, or Adam and Eve also created on day 6. And the results of the most current research continues, as it has for over 60 years now to make Darwinism, and more recently, neo-Darwinism, less and less relevant for explaining the origin and diversity of life on Earth.
0: You know, Dr. Scripture, I've heard that word before, neo-Darwinism, but frankly, I'm not sure what it means. I'm pretty sure I know what Darwinism is, but what does the neo mean? Oh, that's
1: an excellent question, Scott. I think that probably is something that a lot of people wonder about. I would say that today, what is called Darwinism is actually neo-Darwinism. Because the widespread understanding of evolution today—what little there really is of it amongst the mainstream population—includes the knowledge that genetics are somehow involved. But you see, in Darwin's day, they didn't know anything about DNA or genes. They certainly had no understanding of molecular biology, and things like genetic mutations or nuclear versus mitochondrial (laughs) DNA— There actually was no field of genetics because genes had not yet Mm. been discovered. And even after the discoverer of genes, Gregor Mendel, and he didn't even know he had discovered genes. He just discovered the effect of genes. Mm. It took over 50 years for scientists to begin to understand the significance of what Mendel had discovered.
0: Mendel, now, wasn't he the monk who studied peas?
1: (laughs) That's right. And he figured out that an organism, in the case of what he was studying, peas, had distinct bits of information that produced a trait, and he called them factors. He didn't even name them genes. For example, that factor produced wrinkled skin or smooth skin. And when peas with different traits were cross-fertilized— Some traits were dominant and some were recessive. Oh, I
0: remember studying some of this in biology.
1: Dominant and recessive traits, right? And in some cases, when two different traits were present in two parental plants, both traits were expressed. In other words, they seemed to mix together, forming a combination of traits. And so what Mendel was observing, even though he didn't know exactly what they were, was the information carried by the distinct pieces of DNA that we now call genes something that now most high schoolers know about, a little bit at least, but Darwin had no idea of such things, and that it was the information carried in genes that produced the variation that he claimed was produced by natural selection. What he was looking at was individual variation in a population. And then based on whether that trait, that characteristic was good or bad, it helped survival or not. He then said natural selection could take those traits and increase them in a population. Thus, populations over time would change. In other words, survival of the fittest would be what natural selection accomplished. It wasn't then until 1942... 83 years after Darwin published Origin of the Species that an evolutionist named Julian Huxley published his book entitled Evolution, the Modern Synthesis, which incorporated the idea of genes and mutated genes in the proposals he put forth, eventually then became known as Neo-Darwinism. But, Scott, even then, in 1942, the structure of DNA hadn't yet been discovered. That took over a decade later. And so then it was even later that what a mutation actually was and how information could be transmitted by a chemical became known.
0: The chemical DNA.
1: Yes. Deoxyribonucleic acid. DNA. A chemical. It actually has the information, due to its composition, which is read and interpreted by the machinery in the cell, and then used by that machinery to produce proteins that basically do everything necessary for the cell to live, grow, and reproduce. That's amazing. It is. And I don't think most people understand how dated the information that is continually presented as fact in the public educational system really is. The basic tenets of Darwinism, or more accurately put, neo-Darwinism, did not take into consideration the discoveries of the last 40 years oh, or more. Man. The advances in the fields of genetics and molecular biology have created all kinds of problems for neo-Darwinism. But if you read the textbooks the public educational system requires our schools to use, you'd never have
0: a clue of that. So would you say that the growing popularity of intelligent design theory is an outgrowth of the discoveries in genetics and molecular biology? Absolutely. And that explains why the Darwinists are adamantly against not only
1: creation, but intelligent design. Because ultimately, if you understand ID theory, you realize why it's needed. Darwinism cannot explain how we have the fantastic diversity and complexity of life on Earth. And actually, that woeful inadequacy of Darwinism, or even neo-Darwinism, is recognized by scientists who aren't even supporters of intelligent design. One of the things I learned by reading this new CRSQ journal is there is a group of evolutionists who are advocating a new third explanation for the origin of biological diversity. The first two being creation and Darwinism. And it's called The Third Way of Evolution. They have a website, thethirdwayofevolution.com. All those words run together. <laughs> the Third Way of Evolution.
0: So you're saying these are scientists who are neither creationists nor intelligent design scientists? I think so. Now, like I said, I just learned about this new idea, at least in
1: its formalized presentation. So I have to do some homework on it and find out for sure what these scientists are proposing. But I did look up some information on their website. So I wanted to share some of the things that this new group, the uh, third way of evolution group of scientists (laughs) have proposed. They call this new proposal more of a project than a theory, at least at this point, because they don't really have any concrete proposals. They're just sort of throwing out new ideas. And I found out that this was launched on May 30th of 2014. So it's only been around for about two and a half years, and it was launched by James Shapiro, a really highly respected, well-known evolutionist, another man named Raju, and forgive me, I can't say his name properly, probably, Raju Pukatil, who created the website, and then another scientist, Dennis Noble. And on the homepage, it gives the rationale for this proposal. So let me read what they say. The vast majority of people believe that there are only two alternative ways to explain the origins of biological diversity. One way is creationism. That depends upon intervention by a divine creator. That is clearly unscientific because it brings an arbitrary supernatural force into the evolution process. The commonly accepted alternative is neo-Darwinism, which is clearly naturalistic science, but ignores much contemporary molecular evidence and invokes a set of unsupported assumptions about the accidental nature of hereditary variation. Moreover, some neo-Darwinists have elevated natural selection into a unique creative force that solves all the difficult evolutionary problems without a real empirical basis. Many scientists today feel the need for a deeper and more complex exploration of all aspects of the evolutionary process. Now, I don't know if you caught some of the things that these evolutionary scientists are admitting to. But first of all, let me point out when they say about creation that it's clearly unscientific because it brings an arbitrary supernatural force into the process, and therefore they just dismiss it. Well, you know, we've dealt with this idea before. Yeah, but if the fact of the matter is there really is a creator, what they are setting themselves up for is the absolute inability to deal with reality. Okay? So I think everybody needs to recognize that by definition, since they say, well, creation in no shape or form, because it's calling upon a divine creator, a supernatural force to be behind creation, to be behind the universe, to be behind life, it can't be. They completely rule out the possibility of dealing with reality if, in fact, that's what happened. So that's where they put themselves. But then the second explanation that they talk about, neo-Darwinism, notice what they say about naturalistic science, the standard explanation for the diversity of life. They admit it ignores contemporary molecular evidence. And it uses unsupported assumptions to make their case. Well, you know, we say that all the time. But if a creationist criticizes evolution by making those claims, oh, <laughs> they go ballistic, you know. So here, let's just listen to their own words. Naturalistic science ignores contemporary molecular evidence. And, for example, one of the criticisms that the creationists, the intelligent design scientists continually level at the uh, idea of random mutations building up and building up and building up to make the complex organisms that we see today is that mutations simply can't do that. Randomness simply cannot do that. Well, listen to this statement on this website related to that. They say the DNA record does not support the assertion that small random mutations are the main source of new and useful variations. We now know that the many different processes of variation involve well-regulated cell action on DNA molecules. So this gets at the very molecular heart of genetics. And this entire journal that the Creation Research Society has published just this month deals with a lot of the new research and supports, by far and away, much more the creation model than Darwinism can possibly come up with in support of the evolutionary theory. But for now, I know we have referred to hardly anything in Scripture today, and since I always try and emphasize what's most important is what Scripture says, I thought I'd conclude our show today with a proverb that touches on the subject, really, of research. It's Proverbs 25, verse 2, and I also propose that we make a connection between the scientists of today and the kings of old. Proverbs 25.2 says, It is the glory of God to conceal a matter, but the glory of kings is to search out a matter. And that's not what I say. That's what Scripture says.